Hello everybody, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast, this is episode 17. In this episode we're visiting some old but gold content, the Boxing Science Summit 2019, where myself and Alan Ruddock got around a table with Rob Madden and Dan Lawrence to talk about the different key topics and issues around strength conditioning and sports science in boxing. This also includes an interview with Dr Scott Robinson, where he interjects his knowledge and experience from a nutrition perspective. Talk about a range of different topics, including training load management, avoiding injuries, making weight, and so much more. This is probably my favourite piece of content that we've ever done for Boxing Science because it was just great to just sit around, talk about training. You know, we had a really dynamic uh, discussion, and you know, it's something that we're definitely wanting to do again in the future we're supposed to do it again this year but due to the pandemic uh, we didn't manage to get together and as we got round to being able to do it we became a little bit too busy and maybe a little bit too zoomed out excuse the pun there but yeah we wanted to do it again in the future maybe in front of a live audience where we can do some live Q&A definitely watch this space for the Boxing Science Summit 2021 but for now let's visit revisit Boxing Science Summit 2019 and if you have any comments or questions about any of the subjects that we talk about please fire them away either on our Instagram page Boxing Science or my own page Wilson underscore Boxing Science or send me an email direct to my personal email address dannywilson at boxingscience.co.uk before we get on with the uh, Boxing Science Summit just like to remind you we do have a massive Black Friday sale going on at the moment. It only lasts for this week, so it ends on Friday. It's 50% discount on all our online products. We've got programs that cost uh, £10, £15, or we've got like some bundles where you're making savings of £50, £60, £70. So go check it out. It'll be a program that is uh, suited and ideal for you. And if you spend over £50, you get free Boxing Science t-shirt, one of our new Boxing Science t-shirts that you've seen some of the athletes wearing in the gym. So go check it out, boxingscience.co.uk forward slash products, go and have a look, go and find a programme and product that's suited to you. Okay guys, let's get on with the podcast and like I said, if you've got any questions or comments, please fire them away through Instagram or give me an email. Hello everyone, it's Danny Wilson from Boxing Science and I'm extremely proud and excited to be presenting this roundtable discussion, the Boxing Science Summit, which seems a bit dramatic as it's just four guys in a gym around uh, some plyometric boxes, uh, but we've got some great expertise in here coming from different perspectives, uh, working at many different levels within boxing, uh, from uh, amateurs all the way up to world level, the very top of boxing. and. Because we're coming from different perspectives and we have different thoughts around a lot of different areas within boxing, I thought it would be a good idea to bring us all together and just have it out, a big discussion uh, about the key things, uh, key themes within sports science. So some of the topics that we're going to be covering is uh, key considerations in strength and conditioning, uh, some of the implications around uh, a boxer, you know, some of the training loads and how we manage it and monitor it. We're also going to be talking about the weight making process and uh, supplementation use within boxing. And also we're going to be uh, introducing some of the 
conditioning methods that we like to use and some of the methods that we like to use to try and reduce the likelihood of injury and prevent injuries. Okay, before we get started, I'm going to allow us to introduce ourselves. Uh, we've got Dan Lawrence, Rob Madden, and of course myself, Danny Wilson, and good friend and colleague, uh, Alan Ruddick. So we'll start off with Dan to introduce yourself. Cheers, Danny. Hi, guys. My name's Dan Lawrence. I've worked in boxing for over five years. I'm head of performance for Matchroom Boxing Gym um, over in Essex with Tony Sims. I've worked with the likes of George Groves and currently work with Connor Ben, Joe Cordino, Martin J. Ward, to name a few. I'm very much looking forward to today. Hi, guys. I'm Rob Madden. Uh, know these guys for a little while now. I've known Dan for probably three or four years. Uh, Big passion for boxing. Uh, I've been lucky to have worked in it probably for most of my career initially with just amateurs in, in London uh, and, and more in more recent years with professionals, uh, having worked with Anthony Joshua, James DeGaulle, Lawrence Coley uh, as well, and, and helping out some of the matchroom guys when needed. Um, back, background is a physio over a decade and uh, passion for SNC. Studied my uh, certified SNC specialism course from the States a few years back. So, uh, enjoy the fitness side as well as the injury management and uh, got a big interest in training loads as well. So, hope we can get some good chats going around that. Yep, um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dr. Alan Ruddock. I'm a physiologist, so I like to study how the body responds and adapts to exercise. So uh, if you've seen any of the boxing science work that we've done, I'm the guy that, that pushes people to their max on the treadmill or the bike until they can do no more. Um, I've worked with a range of different athletes in a range of, of different sports, all the way from juniors up to elite boxers. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this round table discussion. I think we're going to uh, bring some unique insights and me and Danny was actually working out how many uh, world champions we've we've collectively worked with and I think we counted 11 didn't we mm. between between you know us four here and and, uh, and and Scott Robinson as well you'll also be coming in onto the discussions in a, in a separate part but I think you're gonna you're gonna really enjoy this you're gonna get a very unique insight into the way that uh, we work uh, and uh, you know I hope you all get get a lot from this mm. Yeah, my name's Scott Robinson. I've got my own uh, consultancy, which primarily focuses on performance nutrition and exercise physiology. Um, so I'm a nutritionist and physiologist by nature or by trade. And um, yeah, so a little whistle-stop tour of kind of my background. I studied at Liverpool John Moores University for four years. So I did a bachelor's and then master's in sports physiology there and then progressed on to the PhD at the University of Birmingham in exercise metabolism. Uh, just after that, I went, uh, well, whilst I was doing the PhD, I worked part-time for a company called Guru Performance, who were based in central London in the Mayfair area. So they had their own lab there, and we kind of worked with a range of different clients from elite level athletes right through to um, kind of like businessmen and businesswomen, private bankers, etc. Uh, so that was a good experience. Um, over probably the last two years, I set up my own consultancy, which is where I work one-to-one -one with a wide range of clients, including professional boxers and fighters, um, also with some Premier League football players, and then also in the pre uh, professional motorsport domain as well, some race car drivers. So, yeah, quite a good, good mix of athletes and experiences there. Um, 
In terms of working in boxing, what's my favourite thing about working in boxing? I'd have to say that it's it's helping the helping the lads to do it safely and, and do it well. Um, I think that's the most important thing. You know, all too often I see athletes putting themselves through the mill to make the weight and often using unsafe and dangerous practices to, to, to you know hit the scales and make sure it's the right number. When in fact, actually, with a little bit of education and putting the right principles and strategies in place, um, you can help them do it much easier and therefore improve the quality of their camp, the quality of their performance, um, you know, ultimately the quality of their lives as well, because these guys are in a long camp. You know, sometimes it's eight weeks, sometimes it's 12, or even 16 weeks, which is a long time. So if I can help them along the way and, you know, ultimately make them a happier athlete that's performing better, then so that's definitely the best part of the job, really. Cool. Now I'll do a quick introduction about my background. Um, I've been working in boxing for around about six or seven years now. I've worked with a range of amateur boxers, uh, from people that are just having their first bout all the way up through to people on the international stage uh, working with England boxing. I also got a good uh, experience in professional boxing, uh, working with rising, amateur, uh, sorry, rising professionals such as Jordan Gill and Steve Fowler. I also worked with uh, world champions such as Cal Brook and uh, Jamie McDonnell and also got to mention Gavin McDonnell if I'm mentioning Jamie. You got to mention the brother. Good stuff. So as we go around, before we get stuck into the, uh, the kind of the main things that we want to talk about, we want to talk about the, um, the main reasons why we enjoy working in boxing. I know us four, we've got a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, but we've also got a lot of passion uh, for what we do. Um, and that's why we're sitting here Friday, a little bit cold, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wanting to talk about this and share it with uh, people that are wanting to... Uh, get a little bit more out of their performance, get more out of their athletes as well. So I'll start off with Alan, what are the main things that you like? Yeah, so I, the main thing that I really like about working with, with the boxers is that they push themselves to the absolute limit. And with what I do in, in fitness and conditioning, I need that engagement. I need to my athletes to be pushed on into the red zone and even further you know, so that we can we can get the right adaptations, but you don't get that unless you have an athlete that buys into what you're yeah. you're trying to um, get from them, and, and you want to try and improve them in a certain particular way. If you've got an athlete that that's just not engaging in that process, it makes it so mm. so much more difficult. But the boxers give everything, hundred and ten percent, and that makes our job, my job, so much easier. You know, to to get the adaptations that we want from them. And, and you know that's a, a major a major thing why I like it because we can we can test things out in the right way and you know we can we can get the data we can get the fitness improvements and that we know there's no compromise very little compromise in in, in terms of their effort and we can we can really you know get a, a deep dive into how they respond to training and get a very true picture of that as well so you know we're confident in a lot of things that we do works but that's only capable we're only capable of doing that because the boxers give us everything in every session you know as much as possible i think that's a case in point is what the boxers give to it and one of the quick wins i know we're going to go to training load management and, and managing stress later on but you never have to push these guys harder in boxing in combat sports in general you know some quick wins maybe to actually pull back in certain aspects obviously not with the adaptations you're trying to elicit from the, the higher intensity work but uh, no i completely agree they, uh, they give everything to the cause. Absolutely. Yeah. Following on from that, 
one of the key things that I enjoy is being able to explore our uh, kind of our knowledge and our experience uh, and put it into a 12 week, 10 week program uh, and try and explore different training methods because like I've worked in football, I've worked in rugby where they've got a game every weekend or maybe in football where they've got a game twice a week or something like that. You're, you're very restricted to, to what you can do and what you can't. I think with boxing, even though some of the things that we're going to be talking about, like training load and weight making process and being tight in different areas can restrict us, but really we've, we've got free range to do whatever we want to do. Yeah. Um, wherever we want to train, obviously it's got to be evidence-based, it's got to fit around the sparring and the boxing training as well. But mostly over a 10, 12 week period, we've got the freedom to be able to do whatever we want. Yeah. I think following from Alan, I have to agree that that's the big reason why I've loved working with the pros as, as, as well as amateurs to an extent, but the pros taking them through the full journey of a camp and really seeing the quite unique mindset that those, those athletes have, that grit and that determination that allows them to go that extra mile every single time. And then consequently from that, uh, you know, you raised the question just now, Danny, about the challenges we face directly I think that sometimes we that's because of that extra mile and that extra push we end up the, with these athletes pushing too much and, and one of the big challenge we face is when to pull mm. and, and we'll come on to that you know when when do, when do we pull them back as a team with, with uniformed information and as a group to say guys you know let's let's Take, 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 come off the reins a little bit, put, put, put the reins on even and, uh, and, and, and give him a few extra days rest. And that, that's, that's for me the biggest challenge in boxing because I think uh, some, I've seen it many times when the athlete just keeps going, keeps going and, and then they get more tired and yet they still keep going. Mm -hmm. So we're, I think we're getting better, but we've still got a way to go with that. Yeah. I use the volcano analogy on that to, to my boxers. Um, obviously we can use this terminology well enough here around this square table um, but, box. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know in terms of build up, build up of stress so I use a lot of analogies with these guys otherwise they just don't understand it you know I need them to understand and but use the word buy-in and that's big in obviously high performance these days uh, with the likes of Brett Bartholomew but uh, you know if they want to buy into what you're trying to say um, something I use is the volcano analogy you know you just get this build up build up build up of stress and at some certain points it will then have to erupt if you're not managing it properly um, so back to the initial question in terms of what I like I like a number of things in boxing you know um, we all have extreme passion I think that's evident for for this sport um, for me again I kind of alluded to the buy-in there is I get the buy-in from the athletes and I know they're really buying into the process and what I'm trying to do when they start talking my language. So yes, I've done things down to a certain degree, um, but I, case in point, I'll use, he won't mind me saying this, John Ryder messaged me today um, and he said, stress, recover, adapt, in three words. And, I was like, and that, for me, it shows he's really listening to what, what mm -hmm. I'm saying to him. And he really is now starting to understand the training process. It's not just about going hard and applying stress. Yeah, yeah. The magic happens after that, you know, when we have the recovery strategies in place. Mm -hmm. uh, Connor Ben as well, in a few videos at BXR, one of the gyms I work at in town, um, they were trying to get him on the old social media and Instagram. So we did a session. He sat by the ring rope and uh, spoke to them. I then looked back, I, I got the train home. I 
checked on the on the Instagram, which I spend way too much time on. Um, and he was like, "Yep, yeah, just been here with my strength and conditioning coach. You know, it's all about getting strong, applying high amounts of force." And I was like, <laughs> "Proud dad moment, literally. Yeah. <laughs> I, honestly, that for me is what I love. Obviously, you, you love the the fact it is an end goal. We work towards an end goal. Yes, we have." various hurdles along the way it's never a linear path but um and coming out on fight night i'd be lying if i said that wasn't something that i really enjoy yeah that's um, what i'm gonna say that's yeah. very you know it's a proud moment for mm, me because yeah. we've been on that journey and also at that point it's like as much as yes we play a role it is an important role i'm not going to sit here and say it isn't especially yeah. on camera but uh you know our role is done at that point after maybe the warm-up strategy um you then it's down to the fighter you know so uh yeah there's my two. Yeah, it's that I was going to say that the top and bottom of it is exciting. Yeah. You know, seeing that the work that you've put in is going into such an yeah. exciting event, whether that's at Peterborough Arena where we were at the weekend or <laughs> some, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Millennium Stadium twice, Wembley yeah. twice, Madison <laughs> Square. Yeah, but yeah, Joe, my, Joe said yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. Like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. We've all worked in amateur boxing. We've worked yeah, the whole yeah. way up to the top of the the summit, so to speak, and uh, as long as you do, the athlete buys into you and your methods and you take them on the journey, it really doesn't matter where you are. The exactly. end goal remains the same. Absolutely, yeah. It always surprises me when what we write down on paper and then implement works at the end. It's like, this actually does work. This is amazing. I do know a little bit about what I'm saying. But yeah, that is, that is that's satisfying when it all comes together. Yeah, and the plan works. It's, for us, it starts on a big whiteboard sometimes, yeah. doesn't it? Plan it out, you know, you know, months a, months ahead, and it just squiggles on a on a whiteboard. Meticulous planning. Yeah. yeah. Always. So some of the things that were mentioned there, um, talking about like being uh, part of the team, part of the jigsaw, um, that brings on to the key considerations working with the boxer. And my point that I want to say is, from from my perspective, being the strength and conditioning coach, I kind of know my place, even though it's like a, a big part of the team. But where does strength training actually come? If you talk about hierarchy, you've got your sparring, you've got your bag work, you've got your, your pad work as well, and then you've got your conditioning, and probably strength work is going to come a fifth, a fifth place. Um, even though it's really important, you can't think that, right, this, going to try and optimise the, the physiological adaptation from the strength training, that can have a big impact on the conditioning, a uh, big impact on the sparring and, and the technique work as well. So you kind of like have to think about, right, how important is the strength work and in, in, in terms of each camp? Um, so like, for example, let's say we're doing heavy strength training this boxer needs to improve the maximum strength. Ideally, they need to improve their back squat. So you, you know, when we, whenever I've done a back, like back squat training, I'm sore the next day. I'm tight. I'm imagining like what that is for for the boxer as well. So like, I think that is a, a massive consideration. So you can't just see it in black and white. This boxer needs to improve the back squat in in order to get strong but what methods can you put in place to make sure that you can still improve that but not have a detrimental impact Absolutely. on the training? Yeah, I think, yeah, on that, you've got to look on the macro level as opposed to the micro level. We'd be yeah. a bit egotistical to say, you know, I think you touched on it there, Al, about writing things down and how, how the programme 
evolution starts. One thing I'd say is don't be married to your program. You know, we need to act on the fly. Yes, we have some strategy and structures to this overall process, um, but be willing to adapt and overcome is ten, tends to be what I say. Um, and yeah, think macro, not micro. So uh, this, I could, I could present so many different instances where this happens, where the fight would come. We go through our basic biomarkers, we do our kind of neuromuscular fatigue testing and monitoring, but just having a conversation with them. Okay, how, what, what have you done this week? What have you got tomorrow? Like, and uh, and they're flat as a pancake, you know. So I've then got a relatively high volume session. Well, I'm obviously not going to adhere to that session because I've got to look at. Okay, they've got sparring tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Um, there is a bigger pitch to be had for sure. I think for, for me, I'm, I'm probably going to mention a few different things that fit into our different areas, but our boxers are undergoing a process of adaptation and those adaptations take time, but you've also got this, this goal at the end of camp, they've got to fight. Now sometimes what we want to get out of them physiologically and the adaptations that we want to induce from them don't always sit right in terms of the, the camp length or they might not sit right in terms of the opponent that they're, they're facing as well. But understanding the length of the camp is very important to understand what adaptations you can drop in and, and, and try and induce at, at what particular point in time. You know, and, and perhaps if you've got a, a plan that's maybe two or three fights ahead as well and, you, and you've kind of got a bit of an understanding of where your particular boxer or athlete is, is at in their journey towards their ultimate goal, that also helps a lot as well. Related to the adaptations and the time length as well, I think we really need to consider the athlete's training history. So for example, we would not train, we haven't trained Jamie and Gavin McDonnell the same as we have with, with Jordan and Fowler. You know, Jamie and Gavin have got a very well-established training history, training a particular type of way. They're very aerobic athletes, you know, and they're, you know, and they'll admit it, they're not the strongest, they're not the most forceful. Now, one of the things we like to do in our program is to introduce a lot of force, a lot of forcefulness in our athletes and a, a lot of high intensity work, but sometimes you just, you can't do it and you just, you, you do need to acknowledge the training history and the strengths of their athlete. And so we, in, in terms of their conditioning, have taken a, a longer approach and try to hit more around aerobic capacity. So longer high intensity intervals rather than the short ones that you would see a lot of our guys doing on the curve. And I think this is probably relevant to you as well, Rob, is, is injury history. And that's a, that's, a, that's a huge one. You know, whether they've got something that will, you know, limit certain exercises that they do in the, in the gym in their strength or whether it's, you know, they may have a sore Achilles, which means they can't do um, X, Y, Z in conditioning, or they don't, you know, they can't go on a, a long road run, or you know, do something like that. That's another thing. Yeah. I think the biggest thing is, yes, they've got to fight at the end of the camp, but they've also got to make weight. Mm. You know, and how much weight do they need to drop, mm. and when is, yeah. is a huge consideration for us, um, because if they need to drop a lot of weight and they're in a big energy deficit, that impairs what we can do definitely in snc and it's a you know it's a big thing that we've got to got to work around so yeah. for me those are the the, the major challenges and mm. and considerations that we need to make in terms of programming and then we can start to think about where we're putting our little jigsaw puzzle pieces to to try and make that puzzle mm. 
I think uh, to, to follow on from that, the key thing for me that is ideal for any pro setup is that the team process and the team communication is very, very good. And uh, you know, gathering the right level of data, you may have one person for that, for if, if you're lucky to have a performance or a data analyst who can feed into physio, technical coaches, S&C coaches, but generally whoever, however many people are involved with a fighter, you, you all need to be talking on a day-to-day -day basis to be able to make the right decisions. That's what it is, isn't it? The, the data informs us to make our best decisions so that on the fight night, they're coming in at the top of that peak and they're not coming in over it. And um, it could be a small thing where I've seen, you know, over the years, you know, the, the energy's low, uh, the resting heart rate's up a little bit, the sleep was off. Uh, the, you, you, you ring the coach and you ask him, how was he yesterday in the spa? Yeah, he was a bit slow, wasn't himself. Okay, cool, what, what have you got planned today? Oh, he's got a hard session today and we really need him to do it because we're getting close to the fight night and the coach wants him to hit that spar because he historically, psychologically needs it. And then you need to be able to have the guts as an individual or as a team to say, you know what, he's probably run down or he's overtrained, slightly overtrained. Let's step back, as I said earlier, let's, you know, as a team, let's say, look, give him X amount of time off or just adapt and change the session so he doesn't do that heavy spar. He does a, he does a, 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 a green level of training, a low, low intensity, or he works on some good movement work he, he, so he's not dormant. And, you know, it's however many times I've seen that go the other way and he does two days of hard training and then come the weekend he's got a cold and he's run down and, or whatever it might be. So. The, and I'm, I've never been in a setup where it's perfect. That's the crazy thing. And every mistake I've seen happen in elite sport, nine times out of ten, it's because communication's not been there. Because mm -hmm. one person's forgotten to tell this person, or the coach hasn't told you something. So you can never over communicate as a team, right? And it's ever as easy as easy as ever to communicate through our phones and, and all the various methods we have to communicate. So, mm -hmm. so that would be my thing around. That's the biggest, most important thing, and also a challenge. So. Yeah. 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 One of the things that I was going to say about um, the most challenge, challenging part of working in boxing is chaotic. Oh yeah. It's so, it's so chaotic. Not not only from uh, you don't know when the athletes fighting. You know, my girlfriend's having to go at me all the time, like going, right, when can we book an all day? When can we book that? I'm like, I don't know when they're fighting at all, so I don't know. And then there's so many clashes and everything like that, but not only from that perspective in terms of like programming but it's uh, talking about the day-to-day -day one and as a strength conditioning coach as a physiotherapist as a, a running a physiologist as well you've got to be adaptable mm. to work to work in this sport you can't be like stick like like same mind to your program mm. thinking that you've got right we've got to hit this exercise we've got to hit these sets and reps we've got to hit this certain workout sometimes you m might just have to say look just do your stretches burn some calories on cross trainer yeah. and get yourself off. Um, it doesn't sit in our kind of sports science exactly. remit sometimes, but we've got to think about uh, the like, kind of like training load management and making sure that they're getting through the camp. Case in point on that, yeah. and I think I showed you a minute ago, one of my fighters actually messaged me just prior to us starting this. Uh, we massively pulled back on our session, our strength and conditioning session on Wednesday, knowing he had sparring, um, sparring today. 
And uh, he messaged me and said, look, I've just had one of the best spas I've ever had. You know, thanks, thanks for that the other day. Um, and it's just, again, it's managing that on a macro instead of a micro level. If I was egotistical and married to what we had set and set structure, and I am a sucker for structure, um, then, you know, would he have had that good spa? Probably, probably not. And leading on to what, what Rob was saying there, you know, Dr. Fergus Connolly talks about it, about having synergy between different departments. And for me, an open line of communication is absolutely paramount. Um, and you know, it is like, I'm not gonna sit here and say it's easy with boxing coaches, it's not. You know, they are at the, the top of the pyramid, but everything must feed into for one key goal, and that is to improve the fighter. Yeah. Um, so if that means, yeah, if that means you have to have a hard conversation every now and again, then so be it. Yeah, yeah. you know what, you backed off the other day, now he's had an awesome spa, now his confidence is up and he's now taking that in yeah. to next week, mm. you know, and you're probably going to get more out of his, out of his training yeah. next week. Exactly. You know, that's going to have a, a, a you know, he's going to have a massive beneficial effect. And what you said the, to start this out was um, in regards to like these guys work super hard, you know, when you're trying to elicit the adaptations in the red zone runs, etc. And the great thing we've got in boxing is like we say, we haven't ever got to push them that much harder. Um, so when you can kind of get them to pull back a little bit and they see the benefits from that, then that's great because they're not, they're not BSing us, you know? It's not like we're working in a sport where you have to constantly get on at them to work harder. If they yeah. say they are fatigued, then you better believe they're pretty fatigued, you know? Mm -hmm. So obviously our markers should have told us that prior to that, but yeah. I think, and around that as well, I was just thinking as you guys were talking, the psychology of the structure is, is massive for those athletes, they're type A, if they know what their week looks like, Wednesday I'm lifting, Friday I'm sparring, and you come in, you've got to have really good grounds to say you're not lifting today mm -hmm. because psychologically they've prepared themselves for that, mm -hmm. so then they've set themselves up for failure. Mm -hmm. So then you're telling them, sorry, mate, oh, you feel a bit tired, we're going to miss a session. No, mm -hmm. you've got to be able to over-inform and say, look, we've done X, Y, and Z, you know, neuromuscular test, your, your mm. counter movement jump, you might be looking at resting heart rate, whatever, yeah. whatever you've got your hands on to say, look, and, and the fact, this is a great story because you've actually had, it's not just a process, but a process that's shown us that your boxer is in a good point with his education. Yeah. Because he can actually tell, he respects you for mm. pulling back. Imagine if you'd only just started with him. Yeah. And you say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything with you today. You'd think, mm. well, who's this guy? Yeah, telling yeah, me not telling to lift. Me not to, yeah, but yeah. he's actually grateful for you doing nothing. Yeah. That's, br that's brilliant. Yeah, nice, nice. It's a great relationship. Thanks, bud. So that, that's uh, bringing us on to programming and, and training load management. I think that's kind of fitted in nicely. So we'll start off with, with programming. Alan, what are the key things for you when we're putting a program together? I think. I think we've alluded to quite a lot of things uh, in you know in the past five minutes or so that there is a there is a lot of things to consider. You know the training loads of boxers are very high. They want to do a lot of training. There's a lot of aspects to the training, and what we need to certainly what I think is is very important in terms of programming is knowing what the the smallest worthwhile effect is or the minimum effective dose because we don't want to be that, that guy that pushes them over the edge yeah. because then the trust is lost with, with the boxer, the trust is lost with the coach and as soon as you give them a, a session that tips them over the edge and they have a bad spa, you know, things are turning sour pretty quickly yeah. and so having the, the knowledge and understanding as to what is effective um, and for how long it's effective 
is really, really important to, to optimize the training process because yes, you want to give them that, that strain, but you don't want to have that strain that's continuing for, for too long. And you, you definitely don't want to be doing too much in terms of, of overreaching unless it's very planned and, and everyone's on the same page with it. You know, so you really do need to know what that minimal effective dose is and you need to be brave enough to say, that's enough, yeah. you know, and, and, that, and that comes a lot from collecting data, doesn't it? And yeah. Managing it. And similar to what you're saying about the minimal effective dose, when uh, our strength conditioning coach, Tommy Monday, right, mate? <laughs> um, when he started doing his, his dissertation in his third year, um, he was like, what, what can we do to, to have a big impact? And the, what we did was finding what the best, like kind of most optimal percentage 1RM on a trap bar deadlift was. And we found it that it was quite individual, but we found that um, like basically um, when we're doing individual programming, we know where, where to target them. So for example, Jordan Gill, he's around about 50% one rep max, whereas like Fowler would be a little bit heavier because it's a bit stronger. But if we can still get strength adaptations from going at a lower percentage one rep max, then we're gonna hit that. Yeah. So when we when we found out that data, I was like, right, for with velocity-based training now, I'm gonna do a load velocity profile and I'm gonna see um, how, how much we can get away with not doing maximum strength training. So the, the key, we did, we did a few different variables, but the main one that I'm gonna talk about is one that we did with Carl Yousaf, where I was thinking, right, he's gotta make flyweight, what is it, five, seven, five, eight? In, to, in terms of height? Height. Yeah, he's about five, seven. Yeah, tall, he's a tall flyweight, you wouldn't believe it. And he's got that frame that he could probably go up to bantamweight, maybe even super bantamweight, but he's flyweight at the minute. And I was just thinking, right, he's gonna be in a calorie deficit for most of the camp. Um, if he's just maximum strength training, he's probably gonna get sore from that and fatigued from that. I thought, right, I'm gonna work in reverse. So we worked, started speed strength, strength speed, did two or three weeks on max strength, then brought, brought it up back down to speed strength. So, and then at the back end of camp, did a load velocity profile and it's making 10 to 15% improvements across lower percentage one rep max mm. and he maintained maximum strength and when you're thinking about um, you know what what we're doing strength conditioning for mm. is to produce a lot of force in a short amount of time so, so you were hitting strength power early as well did you say yeah, yeah. Speed, speed strength, speed strength. Early. yeah yeah so we were doing uh, trap bar jumps at about 30%, 40%, one rep max, mm. and then working up towards like 70%, mm. uh, one rep max on, on, on a trap bar, yeah. obviously using um, velocity-based training. And then we worked towards like 90% one rep max for about two or three weeks, and then we dropped it totally. And what we found was that it's improving 10, 15% on the lower end, which we want him to, because, yeah. you know, I'd prefer him to be doing that at that end improving at that end because that's where it's going to be producing mm, force yeah. Yeah. if we can maintain maximum strength by doing the minimum amount of work i think that's that's a that's a huge win mm. so i was talking about the minimum effective dose and programming and um kind of leaving ego at the door when it comes mm. to strength training now i'd love my boxers to lift 
hundreds of kilos and stuff like that but really you've got to think what are the demands of the sport yeah. it's to be fast it's to be explosive how can we achieve that without having an impact on yeah. the we yeah, did the same is. thing as well in a similar vein with cluster sprints so in a 30 second sprint interval what we found through our research and we've done we've done a couple of little tiny a little tiny little research project but then we did a, a master's uh, dissertation on this as well we found that when you cluster 30 second intervals you actually get a higher peak and mean speed for a slightly greater um, internal intensity but that external increase in, in, in speed and force production was so much greater than a, than a 30 second an interval so if you, if you can find ways in which to you know keep the the volume the same but maximize intensity so it was, it was the time was exactly the same so so we were, we were doing 30 second intervals compared to 10 on 10 off 10 on 10 off 10 on so 30 second clustered and, and sliced we're finding that we're getting higher higher speeds yeah. and, a, and a greater external intensity for the same, same in a strength-based environment mm -hmm. so we, exactly. when we utilize cluster work using velocity-based training so yeah. we're getting better peak velocities on the same load so mm -hmm. quality of work you know uh, increasing motor unit recruitment etc is is optimized mm -hmm. um, and also you, you alluded to the fact there about kind of force production we're not working in powerlifting it's not just a matter of getting from a to b you know, i know this is very basic but uh, we're, we're, everything's managed by time, so it's not just about how much force you can produce, it's the rate at which you can produce that force. So absolutely we need to surf that force velocity curve, and this is why we profile individuals as well, you know. Mm. We can all now probably stand, sit here, and think, um, and think of an athlete of where you position them on that force velocity curve. Specifically, I, I know a couple now who, you know, I, I'll allude to one, John Ryder. John Ryder is incredibly force dominant. Um, we joke around because his nickname is The Griller, because when we get him doing A-skip drills, Literally, the floor is moving. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just funny, but um, but yeah. So in essence, some big wins for us. Yes, we want to make his strength super strengths, but we can also actually prioritise a, a lot more kind of reactive component and velocity-specific work that's actually going to improve that fire and how quickly they can produce force. And and to intersect, because uh, I think you you guys actually really interested me a, a year or two ago when I was talking to Dan about how you periodise your camps and and just to maybe make a comment and also a question um, to, to, to you both and, and Dan as well. Uh, my comment being, it, it surely makes sense to, just from a training stimulus perspective, to have your velocity-based training, your, your, your strength speed work in early on in the camp as well, right? Because if we follow only a linear progression of, okay, strength, endurance, general, general mm. prep, strength, endurance, strength, pure power at the end, well, what happens if week seven of a 10-week camp the athlete encounters a, an illness for 10 days or, or a niggle right and then you're running out of time mm. to get that adaptation so so that my comment is I think you you were one of the first people that I really saw pushing that you know throughout like almost little three week blocks of, mm. of everything and and therefore my question being and, and it is no, no, not a clear answer is for the viewers as well uh, what is how should we be periodizing a 10-week camp big, big question that's that, yeah. that's a big question and depends, yeah, uh, yeah the, 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 the cop-out is it depends <laughs> on the situation but when you're talking about like um inclusion of like kind of some explosive work and everything like that not leaving it all to the last minute exactly, yeah. we we do actually integrate like stuff in the 
in the warm-up the extended warm-up we do some like loaded counter movement jumps yeah. um we know like right if we've got a speed strength block a trap bar deadlifts we're not just going to go right seven weeks of just normal lifting then next minute you're going to do trap bar deadlifts actually it shifts from yeah. um a war an extended warm-up exercise going into their trap bar deadlifts and then in the next block it'd be trap bar jumps as a as a key exercise so that, so that's how i kind of kind of manage that and there's a few different ways that i've done it um doing like some sort of like complex training where you'll do um a, a maximal um like a, say 90 percent one minute max lift yep. paired with a a, a jumping right. explosive exercise mm-hmm. uh, also like contrast training so we've done uh, three sets of three on a trap bar deadlift above 85 percent one minute max and then we do a trap bar jump at 30%, 40%, one rep max, mm-hmm. uh, three sets of three mm-hmm. on that. So then you're still getting your maximum strength work, you're still getting your explosive work. Mainly we're looking at, at maximum strength, yeah. but you've still got that kind of explosive uh, stimulus there to then work into the next camp. So next, when, when they're on the next uh, phase of camp, they're doing it a little bit fresher should be hitting mm. higher numbers. That with the sort of post-activation potentiation stuff, mm. the contrast work that you're alluding to, which is fantastic, and as you say, you're hitting quite a big aspect of uh, of, of that of that training uh, graph. Volume-wise, how you know how do you adapt to you know to the boxer? As you know, how do you know the amount to periodize and how do you know when you maybe need to do a bit less and what kind of things do you use to to judge? Well, we'll start. Let's, so a bit hard one really. We start from baseline and we make sure that we're only making like twenty percent yeah. increase load, like yeah. a week by week basis, mm-hmm. and then making sure that they're having a, a deload. Um a perfect example would be to do a three to one deload, yes. but nine times out of ten a camp isn't gonna go like that. Um I did um I've just done a twelve week camp for for Fowler um in terms of like uh, conditioning and his loads were one two three one two three and then one two three yeah. well it's one two three four in it if it's 12 weeks but that's more more or less the theme so so, so yeah yeah so it were like uh like um three blocks of four weeks but it were like high medium and then low because it's gone high when i know that it's not going to be doing much sparring and and I'm thinking right it's my, my time to get my adaptations in there and, and really challenge him and, and hammer him basically mm-hmm. and then the the, me, the the middle stage would be to like right it's a bit of a transition phase I can still push him mm-hmm. but I don't want to push him too much because his sparring load's going to go up yeah. and then the last three weeks is where we're just like we call it tickling phase yeah. where, <laughs> where basically you, you, you're taking a backward step you're just working around the high sparring loads and everything like that. And so essentially a reverse process, which mm. is makes a lot of sense. Mm. And, yeah. and I think maybe I would suggest that, I don't know, worldwide, that mm. that certainly isn't the case with all fighters. And if anything, the SNC is running alongside the boxing and it's up and up and up. Mm. And actually they're coming into like week eight of a 10 week camp and they're pushing, mm. they're, they're pushing their strength power development and they're well over the hill. 
mm -hmm. come fight night. So, you know, I think the way you're approaching it makes a lot of sense. Mm. How about you, I think, yeah, very similar. I think, in essence, what we're trying, we're trying to elicit an adaptive response. So, in essence, if you've got an increase in boxing volumes, i.e. via sparring at whatever point they get introduced into the camp, this is, again, where the open line of communication needs to be strong because, as strength and conditioning coaches, we need to be aware of that because if we're then trying to climb the same mountain, and these two collide, then we're yeah. just inducing them upon way too much stress. So in terms of the adaptations that we're trying to elicit from our sessions, we're just not going to get them. Uh, no, if, you, if, you, if we were to think about this very black and white and very, very, very simply, our role is to prepare the boxers to be in the best shape possible for sparring, you know, for their, for their boxing work. So when they increase their, their training load, four weeks out, they better be in a good position mm they better have good fitness, they better be injury free as much as possible and moving well so that then we can get uh, the coach working on what they need to work on inspiring and the athlete and the boxer feels great, you know, and then it's a case of managing their training loads. So they're dropping their weight, they're, they're sparring great and you know, really it, it's there. So yeah. it's like you've got, you've probably got eight weeks if it's a, a, a 12 week camp of where you can do some some good, yeah. good quality work before then you have to really start starting to manage it. Sorry to interrupt again, around that, if you've got a 12-week camp uh, working off a, say, 7 to 10-day taper, have you guys experimented with an, an earlier taper, you know, say week, week 8, 9, depending on the, the boxer, you know, giving them perhaps an extended weekend to to recharge and, and, and have, a, have a bit of uh, pure recovery for you well, guys? Yeah. <laughs> um, the taper for me can be anywhere D between uh, a dealer yeah. yeah the dealer probably starts for me about two weeks mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you do um, a dealer of the 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 last phase uh, for for like two like two weeks out yeah so like if you're doing like your trap bar jumps and uh, landmine split jerks and stuff like that from strength and condition perspective that would basically be deloaded. If you're doing 10 second sprints, 12 second sprints on, on the curve, that would be deloaded. And then you'd go into your, your, your taper phase where like you, see, you then change some of the exercises. So yeah. doing like, some, like a lot of banded work, a lot of mobility work, yeah. Uh, yeah. light medicine ball throws and everything like that. So mm -hmm. that, that's when I change it. The most recent camp uh, with Jordan Gill, I knew that he was going to be doing 12 round uh, and 10 round spars when he hadn't sparred for a week. So I knew that there was going to be a massive spike yeah. in training load. So I just went, right, we need to start the taper early. Mm -hmm. So we, we just forgot the, the, the next phase. We forgot what was, what was planned. I just went, right, what we need to do now is a is, is mm -hmm. taper from here. Yeah. You know what, in the, in the previous two camps, mm we'd we'd been watching very closely collecting mm. his data monitoring speed monitoring his heart rate uh, and just speaking to him getting his general mood mm -hmm. and we were probably only one session away mm. from having that that optimal taper weren't we like mm. he probably just tipped to overreaching a little bit yeah. and we maybe had to pull him back just a little bit yeah. but in you know we, we had the data and we were just like yeah and then mm. Oh, that's not you know that's when we collected that data got that evidence and Danny's then used that in the in the the, 
the, this one coming up then to just, just yeah mm. just to, like to pull it back yeah, in terms of um, anyone that's looking for a little bit of information in the in terms of the scientific model that we use in periodization Vladimir Ischerin has written a lot about block periodization so when we have distinct phases we use block periodization but it's more of a, a, a conjugate uh, periodization model that Yuri Verkashansky has wrote about as well so because we have different phases just humming underneath and then bring them in into the next phase it's more of a con mm. con conjugate type of, of periodization so block and conjugate kind of mm -hmm. hybrid mm -hmm. so uh, Isurin and, and Verkashansky are the, mm. the two two scientists that people want to look at. In regards to the initial question with Rob asking about and, and Danny alluding to the 3-1 in terms of deloads, so yeah, we absolutely do do a similar concept, but we also have a self-auto-regulatory tool in there as well. Um, so yes, we have some structure, but generally speaking with the markers that we have, um, whether it be internal or external markers of that athlete and where they're at, we can then auto-regulate that strategy. So it's not a, a set strategy yeah. of it has to be three and one. Yeah. Um, we might do a four and a one. We, it really does depend on the athlete and what presents, um, presents itself at that given time. Um, something that we find as well, because we're talking about stress management, is um, it's popularized by Derek Hansen, a, a track coach in America, is utilizing like, micro-dosing strategies as well. Um, so something that we, we use at the matchroom gym with the lads is, yes, some of the big wins initially. So when I first went in there, actually, and I'm sure I'm probably jumping the gun here in terms of what, what we're covering, but um, when I first went in there, I, I observed, you know, I didn't go in with this kind of machine gun approach and say, well, you're doing that wrong, you're doing that right, you know. I just I sat there and found out a little bit of information to then inform my decisions, which is what we do. And um, a couple of the wins were to pull back initially, you know, to allow for the adaptive responses to occur. Um, but then also we've now looked at, we've really, I've been there, well, I've been there now 18 months, um, and we've got their kind of weekly structure. We said, okay, how can we get a couple of other wins here? So something we use is this microdosing strategy around key areas, whether it be the neck, uh, whether it be the, the ankle stiffness, calves, the trunk. Uh, shoulders, you know, maybe four exercises, three or four sets, and we can kind of almost drip feed that in on mm -hmm. like a Monday, Wednesday, fi Friday post spa to give them that little bit of extra work on concentrated areas that we yes. want to focus on. Yeah. Um, obviously, my face to face time with these lads is quite limited, so I need to focus on the other qualities that we enjoy focusing on the strength, speed, and power, etc. Mm -hmm. um, yes, we do do some of the, that work I did mention in terms of we call it like a robustness circuit, um, it builds robustness in those key fundamental areas, you know, with high boxing volumes. These guys again I know I'm jumping the gun here um, in terms of what we're covering but these guys are super super overloaded through the kind of anterior shoulder complex um, so if we're not you know taking that into our key considerations and giving them some work to do to kind of rectify that um, very frequently then you know yeah. something's gonna break down and go wrong I think absolutely that that that's a great way to approach it as well they, they've done this bar depending on the boxer you might prioritize one or two things yeah. or or exactly. you might all you, they might all have their own neck work that yeah. they can t tag on the end or mm. as you said some pulling work yeah. to offset and uh you know you get good compliance they're already in the gym mm. they've already they're already warm you don't have to worry about the the warm-up process mm. you can get straight in 10-15 minutes of literally a couple of things yeah. and, and and you know you're getting it you're getting that nice tag mm. on so yeah i'm all for that it's, it's, it's good so we've proper gone into uh, programming there and we've, we've we've talked a long time on that i'm not going to move on because a big 
theme of this section is monitoring and what are the tools that we use in, in monitoring and monitoring load. We're talking about three to one loading strategies. What does that consist of? Uh, what kind of tools do we use? Um, Alan, do you want to yeah, kick I us off? The, the, the most simple thing that, that we use is in terms of conditioning is speed. You know, just a very uh, diligent assessment of, of speed. Um, and the reason being, let's take a let's take a sprint on the on the woodway curve for an example. If we've been tracking speed of a boxer throughout uh, a block of training, then we can prescribe very very accurately uh, the next training session to make sure that we're continuing adaptations. So that's one really really simple thing. If we're doing more longer interval-based sessions, then that might be a heart rate monitor. Simple thing, knowing maximum heart rate, knowing the time that they've spent in their red zone. You know, have we spent enough time in there? Looking at speed along with that. And then, because we, we can get real fancy at the university, we can measure lactate as well. So we can look at the level of acidosis that, that is within a particular session. Now, sometimes we might be targeting a certain magnitude of, of acidosis and a certain blood lactate value. You know, other times it's just a case of just monitoring it. So if we've, if, you know, the lads have just done 30 second sprints and we've just taken a lactate at the end, haven't we, at the end, just to, mm. just to characterize what it, what it is. And, you know, these guys are producing like 20 millimolar uh, per liter of, of lactate, which is com completely insane. But they've been through the process now and they you know they can push themselves they can access those energy pathways and, and produce energy in the way that we think it needs to be produced for high intensity boxing performance so for for us in the lab we can use a lot of a lot of fancy things as well we can mm. use gas analyzers which we have done before um, but i think for the for the people that are watching uh, i think it's an essential piece of equipment is is heart rate heart rate monitor um, they're about fifty pounds to mm. buy, um, and they they really do enable you to dial in on your on your training training management and enable you to track calories as well in yeah. each session. Mm. And I think I'm sure we'll come on to, to making weight, but you need to know how much energy you're expending. You, know, you need to know what's what's going in and what's coming out. You know, and you need to how you know how that's manifesting on the scales as well. So I think my uh, key key tool as a physiologist is certainly heart rate and a heart rate monitor. Right. First, uh, you know, when I went into the matchroom gym, I didn't want to come in with these like 10 or 12 different interventions for them to do because, you know, none of, they won't do any. Um, so we went in with one or two quick wins and one was by a heart rate monitor, yeah. just get a <laughs> Remember when um, Jamie and Gavin started wearing the heart monitor? They absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah absolutely loved it. For them to understand as well, and in essence, then we can say, I know you've alluded to like the no man's land runs and stuff. You can see what, what adaptation we're trying to get. And also, I said about me stepping back and have, and viewing what's going on in the overall training process before I can make an intervention. Is I want to see the heart rates that they're that they're eliciting from sparring from their bag work, you know, mm -hmm. and then that will inform my decision in terms of what I prescribe from a bioenergetic view point um, because if they're getting that adaptation from there then do I need to then prioritize it elsewhere so I completely yeah. agree it's, uh, I think I've got a, a couple of comments to make away from that and I, uh, heart rates a fantastic measure as well I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of the polar h10 um, for me I'll, I'll be honest I don't think I've 
I've certainly never been in an environment where the ideal has existed for monitoring and, and acting upon the data. We strive for it, but you know, it's not easy, as we all know, in, in the sport. Um, simply just looking at RPE time and, and a punch volume for me is really helpful. So the hike so from the States, or I think it's the corner company here in the UK, where you've got the sort of half matchbox size uh, measure in the glove. So you're getting some good data on, 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 on overall training volume. Uh, and then just to raise as a, as a, as a sort of side topic, for me, there's no easy way of measuring lifestyle stress, right? The bigger the athlete, and obviously one of my one of the boxers I've worked with is Anti Joshua, and, and you know I, I can't comment too much on what's going on with him and what we do, but what I can comment on is that he's a man of uh, with a lot of demands on him: uh, sponsorship, uh, interviews, travel. Uh, everyone wants a bit of him. Uh, social media pulling him here and there, or whatever. So. You know that 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 is that exists for all of them, uh, for many of them a smaller degree. But uh, you know, I think that that's something that we really need to improve as a community, as coaches, to be able to support our athlete and say, look, uh, come off your phone early. You know, let's come up with a good sleep strategy for travel. So I've just read a study, and perhaps we'll, we'll share this. It was it was tweeted last night. And it was an association between, in NBA basketball players, an association between late night tweeting, <laughs> so after 11 p.m., and performance the next day. No and that, yep, and they found a relationship. Yeah. Scott shared it. Louise Burke, yeah. Scott, so, who's here. So, Scott, <laughs> so Scott, who's there, will have been looking at Louise Burke's, Professor Louise Burke's yeah, yeah, yeah. feed because mm. they're both nutritionists. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so. Late night tweeting is yeah. uh, associated with impaired performance in the game. Yeah, the next day. And I think what was you know this getting into more your world, Alan. You can you can speak more scientifically than myself, but I I love thinking about the hormone system and what that's doing to them as well. You know, thinking about cortisol, endorphins, dopamine, the addictive hormone that makes us check our phone, mm. uh, clear the notifications. We're in a queue waiting for some food, and then you know five seconds later we check our phone again but we haven't had a notification but the brain says oh give me a give me that tiny little bit of dopamine so it's chemical it's real and it's everywhere and for an athlete it's just the same and I think you know what we what we don't realize yet or we, we're starting to realize as you say that the research is showing us is that persistent small micro doses of dopamine and coupled with that cortisol and the training stress and some pressure and some stress from the girlfriend or the wife or the mother or the mate or the training partner or the opponent who's calling you a bitch or whatever it is, all of those things mount up to the point where you can get burnt out from it. Forget the training, just all that in itself. Yeah. So we, we, we have to be able to understand it better and manage it well, you know, as a, as a, as a community. Yeah. Ticket selling as well. Ticket so, sales so big like, one. Yeah, you're big, talking big about one. sponsorship and media. People are uh, doing the small haul. They've got to sell them tickets. Mm. They've got to get around yeah. and pressure. Yeah, big yeah, pressure. Because if they only sell eighty tickets, then they're not going to get paid. Yeah, and how much of the time have we seen the fighters that are, you know they're on their phone at ten o'clock at night because their mate Harry wants a ticket and it's mm. Thursday night and the fight big. Saturday. Jordan, Jordan were getting phone calls on the day yeah. and yeah, the fight six six o'clock. We were in the hotel lobby. It's packed up, it gets a phone call and he's just like, Sorry. hello, 
And it was some somebody actually phoned him for a ticket. Obviously, he didn't say, "Oh, you can." Oh, yeah, I'll get you one. He just went on the door, mate. Put phone down because he just thought yeah. it's it's my big uh, first big night in uh, headlining my own show. I don't want to be like leave it's it out, mate, or whatever. Understanding yeah. what understand these guys it. go through, yeah, you yeah, know. Exactly. Joe Cordina had the same thing mm. in uh, in Cardiff. It was yeah. yeah, we were having a, a pre-fight meal, and someone was caught. It's like, mate. Just yeah, stop. Just, yeah. Pass it on to someone else. Yeah. We, we've got a clear yeah. goal now. People yeah. don't realise what, the what these guys are going mm. through and, yeah. and you're saying about like having a basic understanding mm. of what they're going through, mm. what their backgrounds are and everything like that. And, yeah. you know, I hate like saying, I know what you're going through because mm. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what it's <laughs> like to starve myself to get down mm. to a certain weight and everything like that. So I can't say that I know what they're going through. But under, having an understanding is the main thing from, that, from the coach's point of view. And that's, that's really important that you've got that understanding and relationship with your athlete and your boxer when they're undergoing those times of stress. Yeah. Because even though the endocrine system and hormones are important, there's no easy way to measure it. Do exactly. we really want to be taking vena puncture exactly. samples yeah. and sending them off to the lab? No, we don't. You know, we, we don't even really want to go near any needles. You know, a lot of sports yeah. have got no needle policies, yeah. you know, which I think is a, is a good thing. So yeah. we're looking at other ways in which we can try and assess that, that, that kind of demand. And it might be heart rate variability. Yeah. It's very difficult to get a good stable measure. Some, some boxers would be, uh, are able to take those measures and are disciplined enough to, to use heart rate variability to do that. Mm -hmm. Some aren't. Yeah. Uh, but it does require a bit of stability. It requires a lot of data and, and data management Absolutely. and data processing. Yeah. So it's not easy to do, which is why having the relationship with your boxer and having a good relationship with the coach and understanding what they are going through is, is the best way to try and manage that training load, especially in key phases of a camp. Yeah, we, sorry. Uh, yeah we're going to move on to... Go, go on, I'll let you have the final that, say. <laughs> So, yeah. Look at internal, back to, back to the initial question, internal and external load monitoring. Internal would be our subjective markers, mm -hmm. RPE, basic questionnaires. You know, we've all got flash questionnaires and graphs. I use them sometimes. I'm not going to stand there and say every single session they punch a load of stuff in. There has to be an element of compliance. And like we said about our big rocks and a couple of wins at certain times, I'd rather some other wins. And then the external load monitoring tools we utilise is um, just a peak. Uh, peak velocity on the five five jumps. It's based on Dan Dan Baker's research um, with the Dow. So it's basic basic assessment of neuromuscular fatigue. Um, you know, it's there are some some questions there in terms of are the jumps consistent every single time. But we've got some good research from it. And if we see a seven to ten percent drop off, we know that might be a little bit of a red flag. I need to go a bit deeper under that bonnet and have more of a conversation with that athlete on that given day. If I'm asking them to, you know, exert yeah. maximal force or yeah. Sure. I think we've covered programming and monitoring. I'm sure we could go into it much more. Um, <coughs> moving on to weight making, it's a massive thing in, in, in boxing and obviously we haven't got Scott with us today. Hopefully we're going to get an interview with him. Mm. He should transition to <laughs> Now it's time to take a, a quick break, um, refresh, get another coffee or drink, water. Uh, reflect on some of the uh, learnings so far, write some notes down and start to revisit uh, the Boxing Science Summit.
this roundtable discussion was supposed to involve uh, Dr. Scott Robinson, but he was away with uh, one of his uh, fighters. So we managed to get a video call with him, with, with Alan Ruddock, uh, where he could answer some of the questions around nutrition and weight making in boxing. So one of the things that I know you do very, very well is fueling for performance. So every, every training session is, a, is an opportunity to get better. But what I think a lot of people um, get a, have a, maybe perhaps have a, a little bit of misguidance on this is that they always need to be in the same negative energy balance to drop weight throughout a camp instead of periodizing it and, and fueling for performance and using times within a, uh, a microcycle or a week where where um using times within within the week where you can you know perhaps drop a little more calories or you know or perhaps mm. add in a few more um yeah. is that something that you think is is really important to to making weight yeah yeah absolutely um there's no point in just giving an athlete a plan and saying here you go follow it for the next six weeks you'll be in a 500 calorie deficit so we'll therefore lose a pound of body fat a week it just doesn't really work like that um and no two days are really the same. Um, so Monday won't be the same as Tuesday, Tuesday won't be the same as Wednesday. Um, there needs to be variation in the total amount of calories that an athlete's consuming and also the type of the calories as well. Um, so there's a good range of food sources to ensure that there's a good supply of different micronutrients and macronutrients so they can fuel their sessions appropriately. Um, I think that, yeah, there's certain times when we can look to hold back a little bit more, perhaps on a rest day. Um, you know, if the, if the box is going to have two days off at the weekend or probably more likely one day, then we can look to restrict a little bit more. If we know there's a double training session followed by another double training session the next day, um, then we'll look to increase calories um, and the size of that energy deficit will be slightly less so that they can fuel the sessions better. Um, we'll also kind of periodize the carbohydrates too. Um, just so that they're getting the right fuels in at the right time. So we'll do some sessions that are low carbohydrate so that we kind of stimulate the fat energy system and, and kind of maximize training adaptations. But I think one of the biggest mistakes I see in boxers make is that they restrict carbohydrates too much during camp through fear of body fat gain. And actually we know that, you know, the most important thing for losing body fat is to be in a negative energy balance. And those carbohydrates are so important for repeated high intensity efforts, sustaining and maintaining strength, speed, power, um, that, you know, I see a lot of the time boxers will, uh, well, most of the time, boxers will carb up after weighing and they'll have a good fun time in doing so. But if they haven't trained with carbohydrates during a sparring or certain high intensity sessions, the body won't be primed to use those carbohydrates when they're in the ring. <clears throat> they might be able to get away with it for, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, three, four, five rounds, but it's those crucial rounds, you know, the championship rounds between seven and 12 that it can really show whether an athlete's primed their fat energy system and their carb energy system. And if they haven't done that through periodizing their nutrition, it will, it, it can make such a huge impact. All right. Next questions on supplements. So yeah. I've seen, uh, I've seen uh, a few images flying around, partic uh, particularly in, in uh, MMA and UFC recently of, of some guys having unbelievable stacks of, of supplements. That they take after after they've made their weight, um, you know, you know, some some of our guys, you know, take supplements, um, 
know, you know, there are some good ones and there, there are some uh, some bad ones. But just interested to to get your take on on supplementation uh, yeah. for combat athletes. Yeah. Um, firstly, I'll probably just say that some of the best athletes that I've worked with, not necessarily boxers, uh, you know, they haven't touched a supplement in their in their life. I think a lot of the time you can cover most bases through food alone. If we can do that with the nutrition plan, then that's great. If an athlete doesn't like certain foods, then and we see um, them getting something in that's particularly important, then we can look to implement a supplement. If they're happy to them, we can find a really high quality tested product, yeah. then that's fine. Um, but also I do think that, you know, we need to make sure that all bases are covered and there are certain supplements with a lot of evidence behind them and certain supplements with, with not very much at all. So usually if there's a supplement that we know is going to be beneficial, um, then we'll, we'll throw it in if that, if the athletes happy to do that, if we know it will do no harm, we'll put it in as a security policy. Um, but yeah, I think that they're not. You know, food first approach is most important. That's going to have the most bang for put uh, for your book kind of thing. Um, but we know that certain things like vitamin D, particularly here in the UK, you're not going to get much. I mean, if I look outside now, it's pouring down with rain. Uh, even like April time, it's still no sun. Um, but we know that that's really important for bone health, muscle function, uh, keeping the immunity high as well, and preventing illness. Um, but we know that most athletes are vitamin D deficient in the winter months. It's only really in the summertime that they become into range. Um, so things like that, and we'll look to supplements, it's difficult to get enough vitamin D from food. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's not a kind of one-size-fits-all approach. Each athlete is different in terms of what they require. Um, after weighing, is quite surprising that they have so many supplements. Uh, you know, with the guys that I work with, we tend to... Um, advise them throughout camp and then maybe after the weigh and they'll, they'll have a couple of things but I don't really see uh, or know of any supplements that are going to have a, a major major impact on performance that we need to throw a, a truckload of supplements into into their system uh, I think sometimes it can be a bit of pseudoscience and you know here take this because it will it will do this and really it, it you know it's probably not going to do very much at, at that time to be honest but yeah yeah, there's very, very few supplements that will have an effect on that um, acute time frame, isn't there? You know, perhaps some uh, concentrated um, supplements like beetroot juice and, you know, maybe maybe some museum black currant, things like things like that, you know, perhaps yeah. would um, have, a, have a beneficial effect. But the, the beetroot juice is something that we, we typically use, but again, it's not a staple across all the fighters because some fighters respond differently to the taste of the beetroot juice. Um, you know, you definitely don't, and, and we'll always have to try that during camp as well, which means that, you know, if you look at one of the beat it shots, I think it, off the top of my head, it, it has around about 400 milligrams of nitrates, which is the kind of magic dose, but also it has 32 grams of carbohydrate. Mm. So is there space to fit that in and be able to practice with that? because I'm not just going to give it to them after weighing and let them try it for the first time at such a crucial time. Yeah. So there's all these kind of different things to consider. And then we know that you need about three to four days of loading the nitrates for it to fully take effect. But actually on the final couple of days before the weighing, we can't really afford an extra 32 grams of carbohydrates. I'd rather get that from food. And the nitrate shots also have salt in. And we're lots of salts that we take away the extracellular fluids so they can drop the weight more easily so again it's not as easy just to kind of throw things in and say here have this 
Um, but sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's always individual specific. First of all, the most important thing would be to make sure that it's safe, safe for use and that it's batch tested. Um, so if you just go on to informsport.com, um, you can plug, the, plug either in whey protein into the search bar and it will show you the whey protein supplements that have been tested. Um, or you can go onto a particular supplement website, maybe Science and Sport, um, and you can look at the whey protein there, and then you can put in the batch code into Inform Sport just to check that that particular, particular batch has been tested. Um, I don't affiliate myself with any supplement companies, but Science and Sport is particularly good because it triple tests for banned substances at three stages of the production process. Um, whereas most companies will only do it once at the end. So it's almost, you can never be 100% sure that a supplement's safe, um, but by triple checking it, it kind of greatly reduces the risk that it does contain a banned substance. Um, I think, you know, athletes need to be super careful with the supplements they are taking. We're now seeing supplements on supermarket shelves as well. Um, even things that might be in disguise, like protein water, um, that's technically a supplement. Where did that protein come from? Did it come from a factory where other supplements are made? It may contain banned substances. Um, There's quite a scary uh, article released from, I think it was UK Antidoping or WADA the other, the other month, which showed that one in 10 supplements sourced off the shelf, if you were just to go into Holland and Barrett or a supermarket, one in 10 would contain a banned substance. Um, so for me, it's just not worth taking the risk. And again, that's where I only work with so many boxes because I need to make sure that you know, there's great communication, but also I look after them with supplements. So usually I will order the supplements for them, go through that process of checking and serial numbers to make sure it's safe to take and be tested and then have it delivered to, to them rather than even to their own devices to, to get it, you know, and take that risk. <laughs> it's an interview now, but if we don't, I, I, I do want to, to cover it because I think it's a, it's a massive thing. Um, from like the boxers that I work with and like kind of especially like people like Jordan and, and Fowler I'm like a strength conditioning coach yes but I'm also like a bit like a performance manager without the official title yeah. you know I'm keeping an eye on, on the weight um, keep an eye on the, the wellness and everything like that um, I'm not a nutritionist but when it comes, I think, to just people like making weight, they've just got to be so data-driven. They've got to be data-driven. Like sometimes, like we're saying about um, like training the gym and, and conditioning, sometimes you don't have to be as, as close to the numbers as, as we'd like to be as sports scientists, strength and conditioning coaches. But with nutrition, you've got to be data-driven. Um, you've got to be working out what our basal metabolic rate is. Uh, we need to know how many calories we're burning a day in our S and C session, in our boxing sessions as well. Because if not assessing, you're, you're guessing big time. Um, as well, taking your weight every day. I, I think I'm a big believer in that because you get a, an idea of where you're at. Because the fluctuate uh, and get an idea of what your daily fluctuations are. Because if you drop, like let's say an extra 200 300 calories and then you expend an extra 200 300 calories in your boxing and then that can have a big impact on on your weight the next day let's say you you take off two pounds or like let's say at a weekend you don't manage your training right you don't manage your nutrition right 
you put on another two pounds over the weekend and just knowing what your fluctuations are there's too many boxers that I've worked with where they're just getting weighed in on a Friday mm. or on towards the back end of the week where they've burnt a few calories but like the muscle collection stores are a little bit more depleted they might be after training where they've they've sweated it out they've just got to get a, a better understanding of, of what the weight is and when they're making weight they talk about the the stress and lifestyle stress it's the stress in itself making weight and a lot of boxers but they didn't understand with it they're thinking I don't know, don't want to know what my weight is so mm. oh, I'll check my weight tomorrow or check my weight towards the end of the week you've got to be um, at one with your weight and your mm. daily fluctuations and everything like that making sure that you're getting the right amount of calories in to make sure that you're getting that deficit and one thing you think about as well based on that that those those time points in between there might be a week or there might be even greater dropping weight isn't a linear process doesn't happen like that there's like Danny said there's fluctuations up and down all the time and you know you need to be understanding those fluctuations and have the data to be confident that those fluctuations will be there and will be present so you know if you get if you're taking your weight on a Friday but then you expect to drop X amount the next Friday but it hasn't happened you know maybe there has been some fluctuations through the week and you have come down just maybe you're on a little bit of a blip there and the next day you'll be down down here so i think yeah it's not linear uh, and it's never straightforward we're in a unique sport as well as we're not just trying to fuel performance we have to make weight our sport is governed by making weight so it's not just a matter of you know let's let's fuel for this given session so in essence we look at that on on like the macro level of It'd be great if Scott was here and I know he's going to add a lot more than I can on this very subject because I've worked with him as part of a team but utilising high days and low days based on the energy demands of that given day um, so in essence if for example and we wouldn't normally program it in this manner but let's say they had a strength session and sparring on the same day well that would be a pretty high day in terms of the energy demands of that given day so you need to be adequately fueled for that the next day might be a, a lower intensity uh, recovery run or something like that well okay well that's a way we can actually really influence body composition and maybe go in a little bit lower you know so that's something that we do implement um, but yeah Scott will uh, I'm sure blow that out of the no uh, there's there is one school of thought that you know you have to in order to drop weight you have to always have a like a long steady run in there or, or a fasted run in there but <clears throat> really you're not fueling performance there. That's that you, you don't need to do that because if if we've got a boxer that that goes on a long, long, steady run, one, we're not getting the adaptations that we want in a high intensity sport from that. Two, they're putting a lot of load, especially if it's a run on the road, they're putting a lot of load from the body and they're increasing their their, their training load. The movement the movement patterns yeah are suboptimal for the sport yep. especially if they're doing a lot of it and they're actually not burning that many calories when they do it no it might be 600 700 perhaps 800 calories now think about where you can get those gains from well that's from your diet you can drop a significant portion of the calories that you're expending in that low long slow steady run just by dietary manipulation yeah. so without, without that additional stress 
And <laughs> <laughs> I just meant a lower date. Yeah. And <laughs> and what you can do is is fuel fuel that performance and periodize your nutrition, not just around the, the high and the low days, which is important, but periodize it in terms of the within the day so that might make sure that you're eating the right amount of foods, hydrating the right way in preparation for that high intensity session and then recovering the right way. And then either side of that, that's where you can you know, limit your, your calories if you need to do that and, and drop weight through so calorie fuel restriction. For session, fuel for the session, day, yeah, yeah. but also periodizing nutrition across the camp as well. If you're trying to crash weight at the start of the camp and drop a load of calories straight away, that is not the way to do it because that's gonna catch up to you and you're not gonna be able to drop the weight later on in camp when actually it's more, it, it's more critical. Yeah. Following on from that, I mean, I'll add my two pence and it is just that because this isn't my uh, field either, but, um, you know, trying to adopt an 80-20 approach out of camp, you know, because I think so much of the time, especially the amateurs, you know, they break out of camp, they haven't got as much contact with their S&C coach, their, their technical coach, if they have a nutritionist. I mean, generally, all you guys maintain contact all year round, obviously, but... You know, we find they, they go off and the diet completely goes out the window. The training drops massively and, uh, you know, they obviously pack on 10 kilos quite quickly and uh, it's a nightmare when they're coming back in. So I think mm -hmm. just generally just just to ensure that you're monitoring them outside of camp mm -hmm. so that it's less of a difficult process when they're coming. You need to know what their highest highest weight is. Do you set enough a limit with your guys? Yeah. Out of camp, yeah. Well. yeah. 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 We want to retain as much lean tissue yeah. as possible. And so if the weight making process is wrong from a nutritional aspect and you're crashing a lot of weight, especially first of all, yeah. what's the first thing to go? It's gonna be it's gonna be muscle. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna lose lean tissue and we don't want that because effective punching requires a lot of momentum of the yeah. punching arm. So if you are lo losing muscle mass, then you're not gonna be able to create that force and you're not going to be able to retain that, that lean tissue in order to contribute to momentum of the punching arm and, and the rest of the segments as well, especially around the core. Yeah. That will be a very, very area, an area to go very, very quickly. And we retain quite a lot of fatty tissue around our trunk as well. Yeah. And so if we're crashing a lot of weight quickly and we, we know we're not dropping um, the mass through fat and it's through lean tissue then you're compromising performance when you have to take shots around around mm. the trunk and you have to produce rotational forces around the trunk as well to yeah. to have an effective punch so a lot of it, it comes down to trying to preserve as much lean tissue as possible and for, making for sure manipulation you manipulation of the protein and exactly yeah and you know you don't need you don't need a lot of protein in order to lean, retain lean tissue but it just needs to be provided in in the right way at the correct time and, and drip fed yeah. in the in the right manner throughout the day and throughout the throughout the camp as well and if they're in a calorie deficit and you're trying to keep them at a level of you know the protein in your experience you keeping them just over body weight 1.2 kilos um, it has it has gone higher higher before yeah it can go up to two it can go up to two but, but low, is there a threshold for no? Yeah, I no think it, it wouldn't be any lower than that 1.2, 1.5-ish, that, kind of, that yes. kind of boundary yeah. is, is optimal. Yeah. Um, and just dropping in like 20 grams of protein, just, three, yeah, four exactly. hours That's throughout the, the day, just to retain that level of muscle protein synthesis. Yeah. 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 I think uh, what we're just going to finish on with in terms of like making weight is just knowing that it's not just 
making making weight and just getting down to well, yeah. your, your championship fighting weight is actually having to do that in the right ways. There's a lot of acute strategies that you can use that can help you make that weight a lot better and feel a lot stronger. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you'll you'll go to a weigh-in and nine times out of ten, every boxer will make weight. But it's about making weight in that right way and, and getting to that uh, getting to that end goal in the best possible way. And it's like doing stuff like doing low residue diets, um, doing water loading, um, cutting sodium out. You know, once I, I um, with, with an athlete that wasn't uh, was stagnating in his in his weight when he was coming down to weight, I was like thinking right. What is like we were on training camp? I was talking with the nutritionist back uh, back at home, and I'm just like, right, let's have a look at his diet and what he's having. And I actually looked in, and there were like some weird like pickles, pickled beetroots, and pickled beetroots, things like that in the salad. So I took them you out. Think anything of? Yeah, you? yeah, you won't think anything of because it looks it's healthy, yeah. but because it's been like uh, preserved in pickle. Um, they they had a lot of sodium in there. Took that out, lost a pound and a half of a night just by taking that out of the diet. And it's like little things like that, yeah. especially on fight week, that can have a massive impact on how you make weight. Yeah. I think it's an educational process for the athletes as well yeah. in the form of like how they're cooking, what they're cooking with. You know, they yeah. might put some olive oil or something yeah. in there. They exactly. don't know that that's got calories yeah. in it. You know, so it's just the easier process yeah. that we have to educate Definitely. them on. Yeah. It's like having them smart decisions at Nando's and everything like that. Yeah. Matcha peas, 300 calories in them. Oh, wow. Yeah. I can't believe you Oh, I'm being good, I'm having peas. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's 300 calories, might as well have some chips. Yeah. <laughs> okay, take another break now uh, because we had to quickly uh, jump up, uh, jump round and uh, get ourselves warm in that freezing cold gym. Um, so I suggest you take a break now. Uh, but before we go back to the Boxing Science Summit, I'd like to further um, remind you about the Combat Conditioning Conference 2019, which is now available on pre-order at 50% discount, uh, and this finishes on April 30th. The link is in the description below for more information, but check out this video, which tells you everything that you need to know. The next subject that I want to talk about, I'm going to use your expertise here, the common injuries um, in boxing and how can these be easily prevented? 
Well, this is obviously a gigantic topic and we need a day and we could all talk about it for a day. Um, to put it in a nutshell, if I can, which is not easy, um, rather than common injuries, I think the most common reason we get issues is because of inappropriate training load monitoring. So there's too quick a spike or as, you, as we were talking about earlier, there's too much sparring coupled with too much S&C and you know, the, the, the cup is too full. And nine times out of 10, this is what I see. And what can be frustrating for us is managing that um, around common injuries, particularly around training load issues. We, we, we see issues with the shoulder uh, and, and the lower back typically, uh, and, and el elbow and wrist uh, articular issues we, we commonly get. So um, I think a lot of the topics we've already talked about training load monitoring communication as a team knowing when to pull back those are some of those key things that that we really need to get right um, and we, I don't necessarily need to talk on, on those because we've already covered them well um, I, I think uh, again with with managing a boxer in a team it's about being confident when to when to pull them back and giving them the right type of exercise as priorities. Because we've all studied and we were academic and you, you can have an ideal in your head. I've always got that ideal and I know you, you mm -hmm. have and, and you guys as well. Okay, I might say this guy's got uh, a, a reactive tendinopathy uh, as a result of uh, the, his third week in sparring was too heavy a, a, a spike uh, and, and, and he was also overdoing it in the gym and now I'm dealing with a reactive uh, tendinopathy of the shoulder. So how am I gonna approach this? Because we're, we're in the early part of a camp. So I might say there's eight exercises that are key for him to do, coupled up with mobility. And, and the reality is he's probably not gonna do them all. And, mm. and, and I know you get a, a degree of hesitancy from a lot of fighters to, oh, I don't wanna do all of that, it'll make it worse. Or, they're a bit tentative about doing too much. So for me, just like Dan said earlier, find your window to, 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 to get the rehab in and, and rather than be reactive to that injury, try and be pr proactive. So at the end of a spa or at the end of a, a boxing session, he's just finished on the bag, adding some band pull aparts, mm. adding some triple threats, um, you know, add, add, add in mm. some neck condition to, to help prevent issues there. Um, because the reality is, if you write an injury prevention program for boxers to do twice a week, mm. they're not going to do it. Yeah. So find your windows to put it in, and uh, there's no easy way of doing it. But that would be my kind of nutshell, really. Just, mm. just, uh, just to be realistic. I think that's spot on, Rob. And uh, I think you hit the nail on the head there about being proactive and not not reactive you know you're not reacting to a certain issue once the issue arises because the wheels are very much in motion in terms of a camp then and it's very yeah. hard to then make an intervention whilst you've got all this additional stress um, so we can obviously do a basic needs analysis of the sport and we've all worked in this sport for a long period of time and common things tend to occur you know whether they okay let's start at the top whether it's around the shoulder complex whether it's around the thoracic spine influence in the shoulder whether we're then looking at the lumbar spine what's going on around the pelvic region um, and so, yeah, we tend to see common patterns. So that's where we can make an intervention. And that's exactly. why I alluded to the microdosing earlier around those key patterns that we can get a bit of a win there. Um, and it is only 15 minutes in and around their sparring sessions. Once, like you said, they're already warm, they're already mobile. Um, but yeah, going to the specifics of injury, um, again, 
I say specifics, but in a general broad term of our sport. Um, the shoulders are obviously, I know you did the box's shoulder last year um, on this very conference, and uh, which was awesome. So I think the basic way of looking at it is these, are, these guys are so anteriorly dominant and overloaded through their high boxing volumes is how can we get a bit of a win? Okay, well, there's some key areas that, uh, that we can speak about, maybe in and around, you know, the pec minor, we can release that. That's going to stop the shoulder kicking forwards. Obviously, the pec minor's... Um, linked in with the scapula in terms of scapula tilting forwards. We can get our banded pull-aparts in. We can then look at our trunk. We can look at what's going on at the hips. So there's, there's key areas there that we can absolutely influence um, with our programming. So it's just, again, being smart um, with our programming, looking at the specifics of our sport and then making an intervention from there on in. One thing they're saying about like trying to get in the, the mobility training, I do the same warm-up every single session. And it's uh, I'm really focus on rotational mobility, shoulder mobility, hip mobility and glute strength um, and that's uh, and they know the routine so sometimes when you know we're, we're busy at the gym I'm upstairs doing the conditioning work with somebody I'll come downstairs and let's say I'm five minutes late I'm sorry everyone but sometimes five minutes late I'll walk in the athlete's already there already there doing the eagles doing the windmills and it's so pleasing isn't it to see as a coach like we we have uh, i do it very very similar you know we have our movement prep move with the purpose to improve we want to own certain positions etc and when an athlete again i'll refer to connor ben because he is brilliant in this regard i see him at bxr um, on a separate day because we were managing we found that he was burning out a little bit on the the set days that we did have so we then changed um, we intervened and changed his training day so he comes and sees me at a different gym I don't see him at the matchroom gym anymore and uh, you know I say look you have to, I've got a limited time you have to get here earlier and he gets here earlier he's there on a the foam roller he's doing his work he's mobilizing his t-spine he's moving and grooving and uh, it's so pleasing for a coach to see an athlete do that and a case in point again on that one is John Doherty, he won't mind me saying this, very new in the relationship. John Doherty uh, turned over from the amateurs, he's really brought into this overall process of strength and conditioning and uh, you know, he's, he's, he's doing very well with it both in the gym and in the ring. And um, one of my colleagues had to train him, I had to go away um, with, with a client for, for a couple of weeks and uh, one of my colleagues, James Collins at BXR, you know, said he'd come in and, and, and run the program with John and John needed, needed a session. And uh, I knew, I knew John wasn't doing his warm-ups, all right? Because he was the first guy I saw at the matchroom gym. And I'd say, Doc, have you, you done your warm-up strategy? Yeah, yeah, Dan, I've done it, I've done it. You know, I feel, feel good, feel good. All right, John, let's, let's get cracking then, okay? Anyway, my mate messages me, he says, Dan, I don't know what the hell you've got him doing for these warm-ups, mate, because he does not know your warm-up routine. And I, I, I called him that night, I said, Doc, you've let me down, mate, in front of one of my colleagues. You've got, you have an execute. And he said, Dan, I'm sorry, man. And now, warm-up flows he's really bought into it but it took that little bit of a you know uh, situation for him to do that good stuff in in terms of um injuries you mentioned vitamin d just a a few minutes ago you think that uh nutrition has an important uh role to play in injury prevention or injury reduction and even recovery from yeah, 100%. I think if the nutrition isn't right, then you greatly increase the risk of illness uh, and also injury. Um, I think that's where the, the testing comes in useful. Like I said, with the DEXA scan, we can take a look at bone mineral density. And we know if that's quite low or not within the optimal range, and it's something that we can work on during the early stages of camp when the boxer might just be coming back in to boost that bone mineral density into the optimal range and then through appropriate nutrition, and then they can start their kind of heavy phase of camping in a good position. 
Um, I think hydration is, is absolutely key. Um, I see a lot of time in, in boxing that athletes will weigh themselves after training and mm. take that as their true weight. And as a result of knowing that they're going to weigh after training, they won't drink much during training because they think, well, I'll be lighter afterwards. When actually they could be training between you know, 2% and 10% dehydrated. We know that the greater the severity or degree of the dehydration, the more risk of injury. Um, so I'll always have the fighters weigh first thing in the morning fasted, just because that's the most accurate representation of true weight. And then during sparring or whatever training it is, I have them weigh themselves before and after and try and be no more than 2 to 3% dehydrated whilst training. And again, that can greatly reduce the risk of injury and also mean they can get a lot more from their session in terms of output too. The main thing that you said with, uh, in terms of preventing injury, well, most people watching this would be thinking, oh, it's going to drop a... Uh, an exciting like mobility exercise drills or something like that but you said about training load management straight away and this is something that takes no talent to do um, it doesn't need any of us to uh, really hone in on it really sometimes it can come from the boxing side as well in terms of like taking session uh, amount of minutes times RPE it's pretty yeah yeah you can see when when it's a high day and a low day, really, you know, get them athletes taking, taking ownership yeah. of that. And I, I haven't got data on it, but anecdotally, I say there's two higher risk areas for, for, for viewers to be aware of is, is week one, and then just like pre and during peak. So as they come straight back into to, to boxing again, that, that week off and fine is when you get those little niggles because they're still running, they're still lifting and they're started boxing. and little things show their face um so again being proactive not reactive mm. in that prior week so okay yeah. are they are they ready to to, mm. to be hitting the bag are they ready to well, obviously not maybe not sparring week one but and then and then that peak week just coming in okay have you as an snc coach have you taken your foot off the pedal mm. because it's a big sparring week you know is there rest optimal <laughs> uh, is there anabolic system it well you know ideal growth hormone levels and are they mm. are they nurtured and recovering well at night so that they're really giving that hormonal system the best chance of recovery so um and, and again just how we can just monitor and keep an eye on that as a team as two risk factors that i think is is good to bear in mind and and you can't necessarily always prevent issues it's the nature of the sport so mm. it's just being able, being being able to sort of look out for it I think that's a great point to finish on. Um, it's been fantastic to get this sit down. I, th I know that we've been wanting to do this for about two years now, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, to to get around and just put our thoughts together. It's been it's been brilliant. Um, it's about I don't even know how long it's been now. Now and a half worth of content. Um, hopefully, we haven't bored you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, let's let's go around and, and say what we feel that the uh, the future of, of boxing is what what is actually needed from a strength and conditioning perspective i'm happy to kick us off Great, yeah. i believe that you know we were, talk we were talking of off camera um us three earlier about habits and that we we're trying to break boxers out of the habits that they've they've had for a lifetime of going on long runs being able to just 
smash the bag and do whatever in the first week thinking that they need to get back into it we're breaking them habits but i believe a big way in in the future to break them habits is to have it as part of their training as early on and this is why we're doing the youth athlete mm-hmm. initiative um you know you we're play, placing a, a lot of our uh, work in youth training and tommy Mundy's doing a great job with that in 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 terms of educating the coaches and edu- educating the athletes as well we're wanting strength and conditioning to be a big part of uh, youth development because you look at the, the landscape at the moment is that you've got thousands of, of amateur boxers at grassroots level and they only get the strength and conditioning like uh, being made available to them when they're at GB boxing so you're talking your you 20 boxers that are on the on the GB program before that we're doing stuff with England boxing that's a bit limited at, at the minute but we're trying to do as, yeah. as, as much as we can but where do they get that athletic development mm-hmm. uh, going along with their, their, their technical development as well right, because they're in essence we're getting them when their training age is relatively low um, so yeah it makes us look good initially so we can get these positive adaptations but it'd be ideal if they'd started a lot earlier and they'd gone through that process um, so we get them at a later date with better movement competency for sure so you guys are doing a great great job with the LTAD program as, as Tommy Tommy alluded to yesterday he was telling me about it and uh, I think that's brilliant if you can influence not just the kids but the coaches, if you can get the coaches on side and get them buying into your methods. And we're, we've got a unique opportunity now because of the power of social media and everything's you know, being filmed on BT, Sky, etc. They see these elite pros you know, in the gym with their strength and conditioning coaches. Um, so they're, they're obviously intrigued as to what's going on. So if we can yeah, get in now and use that to our advantage and, and educate these people properly and take them through the process. Yeah. The so- social media content of Anthony Joshua doing like loads of strength and conditioning, people are going, well, I, I always use it with the young boxers. I'll say, if the biggest name in, in British boxing, biggest name in world boxing, is doing strength and conditioning, why aren't you doing it? You know, and, and when I've been with England boxing, they've still got pictures of AJ on the wall, mm-hmm. like doing the stretch and doing the warm up. And so if he finds it important, then you should find it important yeah, as well. Is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think's important, Rob? Yeah, so I mean, the future of boxing, where, for us, how, how, how can it be even better than it already is? Because I think we're in a good place. We can certainly be in a better place. Um, to simplify, I would say I think it's important for a professional fighter to have a performance lead or performance manager. It might just be that he's only got one person. He may just have you, Danny, yeah. which would be a great thing. Um, <laughs> but then, of course, you then, you're the core communicator to the technical coach, right? Yeah. But you may have eight individuals, you may have a nutritionist and, and psychologist, etc. That performance lead has to be able to gather all of the qualitative and quantitative feedback and data from the fighter and the team to make an informed decision when we're okay to continue to push and when we need to pull. Because right now, I still don't think that there's quite, in, in many circles, the ability for the performance lead to tell the coach, don't train today. Mm. And, and often the, the, the technical coach will push on anyway. So I think that, that, that's where the future is because I think if we can get to the point where all of what we're gathering can inform us and we can say to the coach who trusts that process, 
all right, we're gonna push hard today, or we're gonna do the opposite, then we stand more chance of bringing in every fighter in peak condition, just like Jordan was recently, and just like Connor was for the last fight, and hopefully just like AJ will be for the New York fight coming up. And, you know, it's, it's a challenge to get them there, but I think if we do the simple things well, and all of those things we've talked about today, there's no reason why we can't achieve that. The golden thread that runs throughout all our recommendations for the future is education. You know, education of the young athlete, education of the performance the director, you know, the lead performance manager and, and the coaching, you know, and, and, the, and the education of the, the boxers too. Um, but I also think the strength and conditioning coaches as well. At the moment, there's no standardization of coaching. You know, and I would really like it if we had a, everyone had a, a level platform uh, and an ability to have a standardized approach to strength conditioning boxing and had really had a great platform to learn about best practice in boxing. Because we have got, you know, we talk quite a bit, you know, and, and, and we're working at quite an elite level, but it's still only four or five guys, you know, talking about this and there's, and there's so many other coaches you know, not just in the UK, but around the world, working in boxing and bringing in their, their experiences and their strengths from, from other sports and into boxing. But boxing's unique. It's a unique sport uh, <coughs> with several, several constraints which you need to, to understand, you know. And I think if there is, if we can have some form of accreditation, you know, or some kind of formal education in terms of preparing strength and conditioning coaches to work in boxing then i think that's going to benefit the the whole of the uh, the whole of combat sports i think you know the ufc performance institute are doing a great job yeah. at raising the profile and raising the standards in in the ufc and in mma and i think you know we've got a unique opportunity here and i think for the combat conditioning conference is just one little part of of that, uh, that little education process, but I think if we can go in the future and have a you know range of a range of, of, of coaches around the, in the UK and around the world learning from a standardised process and understanding best practice in, in strength and conditioning in boxing, I think that's going to be. You guys are driving that forward, so you know not to uh, yeah big you up too much, but it's absolutely brilliant the course that you are putting on in London these days, you know, and upskilling these guys and girls and they're coming on the course and going away with so many take-homes. So the, the bar is being raised, but I completely agree. We need things like this just to get a good message out there, you know, and hopefully there's been some real good value and take-homes from today. But for any coach watching, just, just keep it simple. Understand the sport, do your research. Um, nothing flash, you know, we're looking, we've used the word adaptation. We're looking for these positive ad adaptations. So. Yeah, just don't don't go crazy with it. Understand your athlete, communicate with them, and keep it simple. Yeah, yeah it would be yeah, my yeah. kind of take homes. <laughs> good stuff. That's a great note to finish on. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. Good luck with uh, the boxers at Matchroom Boxing at BXR. Rob, good luck with Anthony Joshua, and uh, I'll good see luck you. trying to keep up with you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'll see you whenever. <laughs> Uh, yeah, thanks so much for your time and sharing your knowledge and experience. I'm sure that people watching are going to be um, very happy with, with what, what they've taken down. You know, like I said, we've got years of, of experience. We've worked at the very highest level, but we know how to adapt these training methods as well. And hopefully people find it uh, quite, access, quite accessible and full of like, motivation to go on and, and take some of the key learning points and start putting it into their coaching and into their training as well. 
think it's time for us to put an extra layer on because they're absolutely <laughs> freezing. But hopefully, guys, yeah, hopefully, guys, we'll uh, we'll get together again. Boxing Science Summit 2020. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Uh, if you've made it this far, you've you've just witnessed some, some fantastic knowledge and experience from uh, from the boxing science team, Dan Lawrence, Rob Madden, and Scott Robinson. Like I said, it's one of our favourite pieces of content that we've done, um, and we're definitely wanting to do it again in the near future. If you like this episode, please take a minute of your time to just give us a five-star rating, uh, of course, if you rate us five stars, and uh, give us some feedback on the podcast, because this will elevate our ratings on the podcast charts, and you know, then we'll be able to deliver some more great content just like this. Okay, guys, until next time, I'll see you on the next episode.